0: Welcome back to Redrawing the Bath. This is your host, Chris Harmon. And today I have a a really special opportunity to to speak to someone who I have never heard people who have interviewed him or or experienced being around him have anything but the highest of of praises to say. And I could go on and on about the the way that his work has brought healing into my life. And, And I could also tell you the story about he's the only person that's ever made me cry listening to a podcast. Today, I get to introduce you guys to Brad Jersak. Brad, thank you so much for being on the show. Thanks for having me, Chris. Pleasure to be here. So I was wondering if, obviously, a lot of people that will be listening to this will kind of know who you are, but I was just wondering if you could share, for those who don't, just some of your faith story and and where you've been to get to where you are now.
1: Yeah, I'm 55, so that could take a while. So I'm going to do the Precies <laughs> version. I uh, grew up in a loving Baptist home Um, side note to that was there was some fear-based religion within the context of that system I had Mm -hmm. really excellent parents who taught me to love Jesus taught me to love prayer taught me to love scripture taught me to love sharing my faith and none of that has gone away from me at all Um, I went off to a conservative Bible college where I became like at first a hardcore dispensationalist I already was one And then later um, tried on five-point Calvinism for a while, for those who know what that is. Anyway, it was was, um, an experience, but that's where I met my wife. And by the time I graduated with my MA, her church uh, invited me to come on staff. And so I spent 10 years in a Mennonite church Hmm. um, with her family system and all of that. And that was really good, too, because I... I learned that Christ is central to the scriptures and to read the Bible through the lens of the Gospels and that they are our highest authority in terms of uh, Christ getting the last word in how to live. Hmm. And uh, and then after 10 years of that, we went uh, off and planted a little independent church, kind of, I would call it small C charismatic, but... Um, and And the charismatic came in because during that time as a Mennonite, we became good friends with vineyard people and we learned some healthy healthy ways of um, doing healing ministry and prophetic ministry, and especially inner healing work with people who'd been abused and molested and so on mm-hmm. so so when we planted the church, we wanted to have something that was very open to the spirit open to God's voice, but also um focused on the margins so for ten years, I led or co-led Freshwind Wind Christian Fellowship. And uh, we were a church of people with disabilities and a lot of addicts and prodigals coming home, uh, the poor, and so on. So we just loved that front lines work with those on the margins. And we saw uh, God do beautiful things there. Um, in 2008, I had a big crash because there were so many tragedies related to the kind of work we were doing. Um, mm. And, and so my wife stepped in, the, the board asked her to lead. And so she led the church for the next five years while I sort of recovered uh, while doing research work on a PhD in theology. And I wanted to, I felt like I had, I had faced enough stuff to know what some of the questions are and that I was ready mm-hmm. to spend deep time facing those questions and especially how a theology of the cross answers the problem of human suffering and affliction rather than rationalizing it. Um, We have a, I will call it a mystical experience before the cross. And that actually brings healing to our sorrow. Um, Hmm. By the time I, Finished my PhD, I didn't want to go pastor again, and so I ended up in the academic world. I teach patristics and theology and biblical studies at Canada's smallest university, Saint Stephen's University. Um, so I teach a module program there. I'm the dean of theology and culture, and mm-hmm. also I I joined the Orthodox Church in twenty uh, what was that twenty twelve. I even through my healing time and before that um, I sat under the mentorship of Archbishop Lazar Pahalo who's a, a monk in a nearby monastery and so he helped me process a lot of the theology that was unraveling for me. So um, hmm. in the Eastern Eastern uh, Orthodox world uh, they are the stewards of the early church fathers and, and when I studied them I saw there is no retribution in God hmm. and that there is an Orthodox eschatology that is hopeful and their theology of the cross is about co-suffering love of God, has nothing to do with appeasement of wrath and so on. So I found a home there. And um, actually, the way they do worship, for me, it's beautiful and and therapeutic. So that helped my nervous system after after my tumble. And so mm-hmm. here I am today. And um, uh, besides the work with the Orthodox Church and, and the university, I'm also... Um, uh, I'm also into 12 step recovery. Uh, I found them very helpful in my healing as well. I've been going to meetings yep. for the last 10 years. Actually, I'm going to be going to one in about 90 minutes. So, oh, wow. Um online and um and their whole thing is that that we come to wholeness when we surrender to the love of God. And uh, hmm. so I love that model and it's one way I do evangelism actually like God is love. And if you surrender to his love, that's, that is turning to him. And so uh maybe that's, I'll stop there, but that's my, my elevator version. It was a, a tall elevator though.
0: <laughs> yeah. Very, very tall building. And and I don't know if I've ever heard anyone ask you this, but you've had this, this really interesting and in, in, uh, in an amazing way, kind of, different ecumenical journey than than a lot of people experience in their lifetime and i i'm interested to to know as you had all these theological issues and and i love that that you mentioned that people rationalize suffering yeah. until they really come to encounter it but i'm i'm interested to to hear both how i mean maybe not speak for her but but how your wife responded to your theology unraveling? Was she going through a similar process at the same time? What was that like for you guys as a, as a married couple, in, especially a married couple in ministry? What, what was that experience like? Um, well, one part of it is that um, we have very, very different spiritualities
1: and expressions mm-hmm. of faith. And yet uh, one thing we do very well together is listen to God. And so, the one place where we really connect is is in listening together and especially in crises and so on. And so um, uh, when we would face a crisis or when I would face a crisis of faith, you know, we would just listen together. And usually what what she would hear was very affirming. And in fact, sometimes it appears to me she had been waiting for me to arrive at her conclusions <laughs> and <she just laughs> been impatiently waiting for me for, you know, an awakening and that happened. Um, and then I would say that the other part of it is, you know, it was very difficult for her to, to try to bring healing to a church that was experiencing a lot of sorrow and also hmm. me when I was not functioning very well for quite a while. Um, that yeah. was very, very painful for her. And, and yet, um, I watched her grow into this just supernatural grace. So mm-hmm. I will say we have been in agreement um, in terms of our journey, but that includes her honoring me needing to take the Orthodox path for healing and mm-hmm. her needing to stay in a church uh, model where she's fully welcomed as a leader and a teacher. So we don't attend the same church except when I visit hers. And mm-hmm. um and we're okay with that. It's Some people think it's a bit odd, but it's like, I, I I knew what I needed for me, and she knew that was not for her, and so we um, cheer each other on.
0: Yeah, and, and that's very unheard of, particularly for, for relating to, to your story of, of being kind of brought up in a in a dispensationalist, five-point Calvinist kind of environment, it's very unheard of for for two spouses to go to different church- churches, particularly Mennonite churches and Eastern Orthodox churches. Um, you don't you don't really see that theology show up that often in churches like that.
1: Yeah, it's true. And I would say part of what helps is like she doesn't really care about theology very much. She's mm-hmm. into relationship and loving um, God and loving neighbor, loving loving um you know living living the jesus way and um and for me i'm very deeply concerned about theological issues and i love exploring Mm -hmm. that and she's like yeah well go to it (laughs) and (laughs) so when it's like that there's it's there's not a lot of conflict in that
0: yeah And, and and like you said you you've you do very much care about theological issues and and i Correct me if I'm wrong, but it seems like a lot of your writing, particularly within your own faith journey, it seems like it has fueled what you've written, whether it be Her Gates Will Never Be Shut or A More Christlike God Now Into a More Christlike Way. Um, and I'm interested, you just came out with a book recently called In, and I'm, I'm interested to hear what was the experience that kind of projected that project forward?
1: Yeah, you've. Uh, I perceive you are a prophet. <laughs> the, um, I really, I very um, strongly believe that theology is is meant to be descriptive of what the Holy Spirit is doing in the life of a worshiping body, and hmm. in other words, um, that our theology should not be composed in the corner of some seminary office um, and then prescribed to the church. Who needs to go apply it somehow? Rather, hmm. the theologian is. My friend Paul Ralph says it this way: uh, Theologians are stenographers. Uh, we are witnesses of of what God is doing, and we're recording it. We're categorizing. We're uh, and and um, and so in my case, I, my theological reflections. Include remembering as well. So let's say we've got these these living questions happening in our faith community. Um, the theologian will observe what God is doing, and then they'll also ask, um, Has the church seen this before, and how did we respond? And if if we have to respond in fresh ways, will it be in a, alignment with the great tradition, mm-hmm. or um, are we in you know going off the rails, or we're going to just have to think some fresh thoughts? So all of my books are responsive that way. And so there's a pastoral and even even, uh, evangelistic um, drive behind all of them. So in the case Mm -hmm. of In, um, the subtitle is Incarnation and Inclusion, Abba and Lamb. And so here's the pastoral question. On the one hand, I have friends who have a high Christology. That means their theology of Jesus is high. They believe he's the son of God and that he's God the son. Um, but and that he's the way uh, to eternal life. However, in that model, they also tend to be very exclusive, and that they can't imagine the grace of God working outside of the church. But I noticed in the story of of Cornelius in the Book of Acts, before he even heard the gospel, the Bible says. That he was accepted by God, that God heard his prayers, noticed his alms-giving, and considered him righteous. Hmm. And then Paul, Peter—I mean, Peter—was even told, uh, "Don't call unclean what I've already made clean." So wait a minute, Cornelius, the non-Christian, is acceptable, righteous, and already clean. Hmm. Wow. So yeah. that means our vision has been too narrow. Um, on the other hand, I have friends who. Also believe that God's love is all inclusive. That it, that, um, as with Romans five, you know what he did, he did for everyone. On the cross, he forgave everyone. It says even that while we were his enemies, he reconciled us to God. So they are saying God's love is all inclusive, and whatever damage Adam did to the human race, Christ has undone in himself, and that's for everybody, not just Christians. Hmm. The problem with that. Is that some of those folks then think that the all-inclusive love uh, needs to diminish Jesus, and so he becomes optional, or maybe one of the prophets, or you know they marginalize him, and so what I'm doing in my book in In I'm trying to say this: Um, we are meant to have our cake and eat it too. Here, Um, these are two harmonious truths. A high Christology leads you to see that God's love is higher, wider, longer, and deeper than you can get your head around. Hmm. And in fact, the higher my Christology, the more inclusive I've seen his Abba to be. And wow. so I play that out in, in stories like the Cornelius story, but also with a lot of direct testimonies of people I know who've encountered Christ prior to um, uh, to to, to hearing the gospel or they've encountered God as love and light and life. And they've been living mm-hmm. that way and being transformed, even though they don't know it's Jesus yet. Yeah. And um, my role at some point is to say, ah, the love, the light, and the life that you've encountered also came as a lamb. And it's worth telling them that because, because in knowing him as the one who died on the cross and rose again, They get the full inheritance of, you know, they're already his children, but maybe they still have fear of death and maybe they carry the weight of guilt and maybe they're undergoing the torment of shame. Well, it's in in meeting the light they've already met now as the lamb who has taken care of all of that. They come into the fullness of their inheritance. So that's the book in a nutshell. And there's some cool stories about how, how i've seen modern day Cornelius's.
0: Hmm. Yeah, and and i really want to dig into that of of why it's still important to tell uh people about Jesus and and not to marginalize him. I think that's the the biggest pushback against uh either patristic universalism or even just simply a more inclusive ending to the story. Um but but before we do that we we we've mentioned pre-knowing Jesus, but i, I want to ask you really quickly since we just came out of the easter season about post mortem so the harrowing of hell yeah uh how so it especially growing up in in a more five point calvinist it, it's actually really interesting because at least from someone like john piper it seems like the the descent into hades is actually kind of up for question of like well maybe it happened maybe it didn't which i find kind of ironic but it's not
1: ironic it's heretical like honestly that get, mm-hmm. that word gets thrown around too easily. It usually just means that heresy is when you don't agree with me. Here's what yeah. I might mean by it: that the dogma of the Christian faith was summarized in church councils as uh, and as the creeds. So in the in the the um, that's the doctrine that you're expected to believe and confess on your baptism, right? So. Mm-hmm. Let's say in the West, it's the Apostles' Creed. So the Apostles' Creed is the gospel summarized that you need to confess on, 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 at your baptism. And it includes that he died, he descended into hell, and he rose from the dead. So that's a dogma. And then to say that any line of the Apostles' Creed or the Nicene Creed is up for question is to depart from orthodoxy. And uh-huh. Piper's not the first to do that. It, it begins with in John Calvin's Institutes. He's doing a study on the Apostles' Creed. He gets to the descent into hell, and he says, "Setting aside the creeds," and I'm like, <laughs> "Whoa!" You know, well, yeah. Why would I listen to that any more than I listen to Joseph Smith, yeah, the Mormons, right? So, yeah. sorry to interrupt, but like that's oh, no, that's yeah. where I'm coming from on it, right? And so. So this idea of the harrowing of hell or or his descent into Hades and all of that um, in the Eastern Church, that's that's not like um, optional. It's it's part of the gospel. It's as much as like Jesus died or Jesus Hmm. rose. It's the it's the line between Jesus dying and Jesus rising. And um, we celebrate that. Not just at Easter, we celebrated every single Sunday with various hymns. Hmm. I'll give you one example. We have a thing called uh, odes. Odes are songs. Ode 7 of the Paschal Canon. So this is like a canonical um, uh, hymn that we sing during Pascha, which means Passover. So we combine mm-hmm. Good Friday and Easter Sunday as Pascha, Passover. Here, get a load of this line. We celebrate the death of death, the destruction of hell, the beginning of eternal life. And leaping for joy, we celebrate the cause, the only blessed and most glorious God of our fathers. So that's the kind of stuff. It's, it just yeah. permeates the early church hymnology. So, yeah. Yeah.
0: Yeah. And, and, and I agree with you. Definitely. I, I think I was more so d- describing it as ironic to, to see someone like him so quick to um, dismiss certain people, especially now with this whole justification debate going on. Um, yeah. Yeah. I, and I it, heard you it,
1: saying it that way. Don't worry.
0: <laughs> okay, cool. <laughs> but with that being said, you kind of did answer it through your response to, to that heresy. Um But how expansive was the harrowing of hell?
1: Well, that's a little debate. Um, So there are there. And so this is where you get because it's because that question is not answered in the creed or creeds. um, Then we're into what we call theologumina, which means theological opinion. And you're allowed to debate it. Um, mm-hmm. You just can't make it mandatory, right so mm-hmm. um even among the early church fathers, some of them envisioned the harrowing of hell applying only to Old Testament saints, mm-hmm. and then others of them were very clear that it applies to everybody, and I would say that would be the case of even in the New Testament where where Paul talks about, as in Adam all died, so in Christ all shall be made alive. But also mm-hmm. in, in uh, Peter's, Peter's epistles, you know, when he talks about Christ preaching, and the word is evangelizing, that's the word. He evangelized the spirits who were in prison. And then he describes who they are, that they were those who perished in the flood. And then it says that, you know, when he evangelized those that perished in the flood he made alive those who were judged in the flesh um, so that they would no those who were judged in the flesh, he made alive in the spirit. Okay. So we've got the word evangelized. We've got sinners, not saints who perish in the flood. And when he preaches to them, they who had been judged in the flesh are made alive in the spirit, which is the same phrase Peter uses for Christ's resurrection. Hmm. So, Passages like that then suggest that, that it's, it's, it's all-inclusive. And uh, one example that's pretty huge is that every year we, we preach the Paschal hymn of St. John Chrysostom. And so this, it was such an anointed sermon. They said, we must preach this, this sermon word for word until Christ returns. And they've been doing so for 1,700 years now. Wow. Uh, 1,600 years and um and in that it says that Christ conquered conquered death and 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 he says and not one dead remains in the grave. Okay, well then that's not just saints, right? But yeah. anyway, so that's the debate. So, so for some it's the saints and for some it's everyone. And I um the hymnology leads me to believe it's everyone.
0: Yeah. And and I'd be interested to hear what you, even as you're talking and thinking about when Jesus talks about um the enemy stealing, killing, and destroying, and to to defeat the strongman you have to bind him and plunder his goods. Yep. So it, it might even come down to how you interpret the goods of the strongman. Like what it like what is that? Is that the the saints or is that everyone? So I guess that kind of gets into your anthropology of how you view humanity in general.
1: Yeah, that's a good point. And in fact, um when you the the moment you hear the word plunder You're meant to remember the Exodus because because, Mm. um, God, in the Exodus, God, through Moses, plundered Egypt. And so all those who were enslaved to Pharaoh are set free through the Passover. And that prefigures the Passover of Jesus Christ when he binds the strong man, not Pharaoh, but Hades or Satan. Mm-hmm. And he enters his house, which is Hades. So he binds Satan, enters Hades, and plunders his goods. Who are his goods? All those who were enslaved by him. So that mm-hmm. would be a good example of how to read the the Old Testament uh, prefiguratively as type and anti-type. And um, so I, I suggest watching for keywords that tip you off about the Exodus story. So one is plunder, one is ransom, and one is redemption. Those are all... Yeah reflecting the exodus story and how in in christ the new exodus the uh, the slaves are set free
0: yeah yeah and and even in the exodus narrative it's it's and then some like even some some. (laughs) yeah yeah were were brought into it and gosh that 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 is a beautiful gospel that i wish i'd heard six years ago well that is something i wish I, i had been exposed to much much sooner and But instead it was a, if everyone goes, it was the straw man. If everyone goes to heaven, then what's the point of preaching the gospel? And, and so with, within in mind, with the harrowing of hell in mind, with this radical inclusion that, that in in a lot of ways you've convinced me to be true and, and my own studies have, have convinced me to be true. How do, we, how do we evangelize? Because obviously that's, that's a straw man and it's a poor argument in, just in general.
1: Yeah, I think the best way to do that is, is to think about John chapter three. So John's had an extra generation to think and pray and fellowship with the spirit of Christ. And then he writes mm-hmm. his book. And in John's book, he treats perishing or slash judgment and condemnation as present tense realities and he treats eternal life as a present tense reality. So hmm. he says in John three, look, I didn't come to condemn you. you you already stand condemned. You are, I, I, you are perishing. You are in a trajectory towards non-being. You, you have created hell on earth. So, so all of the things that we would associate with hell, um, in John 3, Christ identifies them as already in play in this life for people. And hell would be a good, that hell would be a good biblical term for what psychologists call alienation. So we hmm. already experience the human condition as alienation and death, anxiety, etc. So that's hell. You're already in hell. And then eternal life is like, it's not when you die and go to heaven someday. Eternal life is knowing me. And you can hmm. experience the fullness of joy that is eternal life or he calls it abundant life or fullness of life that's that's heaven and it's now and it's knowing him and this too is John 3 but it's also the whole gospel of John so it seems to me there's different ways of talking about about this so you, can, you and some are more helpful than others for particular generations in our generation it is not helpful to talk about heaven and hell as afterlife consequences of of, uh, our experience in life. Now, it's not as helpful as talking about perishing and eternal life in the present moment. Um, And the reason I say that is because when we preach a gospel of heaven and hell, someday when you die, people defer the decision. There's no urgency to it at all. In fact, they think, well, maybe I can just like be a hedonist and then work it out. I'll make my peace with God before I die. Hmm. And that that's just like that's not good news um <laughs> yeah um, but if but if i come to people now and they just get it right away i'll go tell me here's what hell is hell is alienation tell me about your hell and they're like oh i know exactly what you mean and they just start telling me hmm. and and i experience alienation here and shame here and fear here and i'm like that's what we're talking about that's darkness can you tell me about your darkness so i listen to their story i'm like well i'm not i'm not threatening you with more darkness what i'm mm. what i'm inviting you to is to see how you could experience fullness of life now you could experience light and life and love divine love now in a way that that heals your heart today and so there's an urgency to that but the urgency isn't about some ominous one day threat in our imagination this th- this the threat is like i'm i'm plunging here <laughs> help me yeah. and so um those who've who sometimes challenge me it's like well you know if there's no hell then why did preach the gospel it's like first of all there is a hell i've never said there's no hell mm, it's the yeah. nature of hell we're talking about and second um uh, why preach the gospel well here's and Then I ask questions like how, do you have you not seen the human condition and how broken people are? Do you not know mm. people who desperately need to meet Jesus? And yeah. you you're just gonna leave them till the afterlife? That's and and have them waste their lives? And the mm. other side is, have you not met Jesus?
0: He's yeah. The greatest yeah. thing that's
1: ever happened to me. I just I, I have a living connection with this one. How could you say there's no point? To knowing Jesus,
0: (laughs) like yeah,
1: yeah. um, So I'm quite convinced that those folks have have largely not met Him. In fact, Mm -hmm. I had a pastor tell me, "Well, if I knew there was no hell to be afraid of after I die, I wouldn't even be a Christian." Like, well, then you aren't one. You're not, yeah,
0: you're not
1: following Jesus out of faith and love. You're you you've just had a you you believe in fear and 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 in fact, you you would rather not follow Jesus if there weren't a gun pointed at your head I'm like wow yeah you, I, you yeah resign
0: <laughs> yeah so, step, step down yeah and, and that's what's so and, and that kind of brings us back to the the justification debate of this is why this is important is it, it's it's an actual experience it, it's not just a get out of hell yeah. free card it yeah. I mean even just thinking about the the story of the men bringing their crippled friend and being so desperate to get them to the living Jesus. That they literally cut a hole in this guy's roof, yeah. And it wasn't it wasn't some future promise. It was this guy can heal him right now. Let's get him to him by any means necessary. That's right. Yeah. And and so with that in mind, what what does that look like for us? What how do we do that in practicality? Of I mean, I'm assuming there's there's no gospel tracts that we have, um, or or little handouts we can pass out on the streets. But but what how do we live life in, in light of? Jesus can bring healing now, which sounds so silly to say, but it, it really does feel like, in retrospect, that wasn't what the gospel was about.
1: Yeah, I mean, saved, right? So, so yeah, is it combines uh, rescue and healing, and I think also it 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 brings in the element of save to what, and its fullness of life is a good phrase, I think, for that. So. Hmm. So the practical element is this is what if what if, like Paul, that we've emptied ourselves sufficiently of egoism and, and self um, our obsession with ourselves, self-centeredness, if, we empty, if we're sufficiently emptied of self-centeredness that the love of God begins to take root, then the people we know, we're going to be deeply interested in their story and we're going to empathize with them and we're going to mourn with them and Mm. we're going to long to see them made whole. And so, so then what's evangelism then it's, it's, it's loving people, um, in such a way that I'm, I'm hearing their story and I'm compelled to, I'm compelled to broker, um, A meeting with Jesus with the living Christ that would that that would alleviate their pain and so sometimes that's just simply offering them prayer but it can also be demonstrating his love and it's not about getting them to say a prayer but it it can be about like I just think God loves you and could I think if you would surrender to his care you could leave a lot of this pain at his at his feet and Would you be interested in that? Mm. And so I see that happen all the time in 12 step recovery, even with people who would still call themselves agnostics, they're willing They've come to a point where they recognize I can't do it anymore. And, and I'm, I'm not getting better on my own. So I'm going to, I'm going to pray as if there's a God and see, and, and, and then um, who loves me and who cares about me and we'll see what happens. Right. And then, and then that's all, that's all the leverage God needs. He begins to, free and heal and transform people and um sometimes he has to do that long before they hear the name of jesus because the name of jesus has been so besmirched by by christians Mm. (laughs) you know
0: yeah yeah
1: so again that's back to the in book but yeah for me for me it is about um facilitating encounters with christ that lead to uh, healing and transformation and um, that, that's kind of how I do it. I just don't think Christians are confident that they can broker such a meeting or they don't believe mm. Jesus will actually come to people. They, they would rather argue them into saying a prayer.
0: <laughs> yeah.
1: Like, oh man, do you not know he's with you right now?
0: And yeah.
1: He's willing to speak to them. If Jesus were in the room and this person's telling you all these problems and you said to Jesus, would you? tell them some good news wouldn't he do it well he is in the mm-hmm. room and you can ask him to do that yeah and uh i've seen that hundreds and hundreds of times through the course of my ministry
0: yeah wow that that's beautiful um with with that in mind i i'm thinking about in my own experience as a christian sitting with people um really wanting to bring jesus to the table for them and feeling like my only equipment to do that was the Bible. Um, what are the I guess I don't want to say parameters, but what, what does it look like to bring Jesus to the table?
1: Yeah. Well, first of all, I would not be too dismissive of the Bible, so I would I would mm. include like I just have so much fun telling people gospel stories that they've never heard, like you and I. We're, yeah. You know, let's say the one. Um, the woman caught in adultery, well, you know, I, you and I know how that story goes, but like a lot of people have never heard that story. And so what I'll say, I, I may bring a, I may bring a scripture like that to them and say, I want to, let's say it's been a woman who's gone through something rough. I'm like, uh, you know, I got, I believe God loves you. And that love was embodied in how Jesus treated women. Can can I tell you a story about that? Okay. And that they don't know how the story is going to end, so it's like so amazing to see them get the punchline, right? Yeah. And then I'm like, if you know what, he still treats people like that, and I, and um, so the way I do it, and you've heard me do it, is I just fa- facilitate a meeting place with him, and um, if people want to look it up, I've I've put online facilitating a meeting place, Jurzak, and they'll find it. And the idea hmm. is, I'll just say. If you could meet him anywhere at all, where would you meet him? Um, and how does he come to you there? And how close can you get to him? Can you touch him or let him lay his wounded hands on you? Um, what, what expression do you see in his face? What are his eyes saying to you? And what's the first thing he says to you? And all of that's going on in their heart. And, and so um, sometimes... Um, you know, we'll just slow down and I'll have them close their eyes and, and picture all of that. Sometimes I'm just mm. asking them the questions and the pictures are coming faster than they can handle them. Like they're ahead of me. And that's because Christ is so ready to meet with broken people. And yeah. So, um, that's not the only approach, but it's the one I use because I think God's given it to me uh, for me to use. And if it helps other people, then go for it. But maybe God's given other people different ways in. But what I see yeah. happen every time, literally every time, is that people who've never met him see his face and hear his voice for the first time. And it's not just um, visualizing. They're having a living connection with a real person who's been waiting to have this conversation.
0: Yeah. No. And, and, and for anyone who's wondering that, that was the moment I was referring to at the beginning of this podcast that that made me cry. It's funny. I, I work on maintenance. I, I clean and, uh, service pools while I'm uh, going through school. And I was sitting in someone's backyard, just weeping like a child and I I hope they didn't see me, but I was sitting back there listening. I was, I was not prepared for it at all.
1: <laughs> so what, can I ask, where did you meet him?
0: Where did I meet him?
1: Yeah. in
0: that I, uh, there's a, there's a camp I used to go to as a kid. I have a very, um, tumultuous childhood experience um and i i met him at a camp i would go to every summer
1: yeah and can i ask what he said to you or what did he
0: show you he showed me i think for the first time in my life like genuine surrender i think for the longest time i spent i've a little bit about my backstory is, is I, I felt called into ministry when I was 16. Um, I, since then I've been kind of not studying, but working towards that goal. And even just within the last few months, I, I actually just changed my major, um, to, to psychology and then hoping to transfer and go to seminary after that. But I spent so long, like, this is what it's going to look like. I had my whole life planned out. And then, my, my wife and i experienced that that trauma and i even just holding on to church like i was I, I was holding on to anything and everything i could and jesus was trying to take me on this journey and he was just like let go like be be at peace so like what are you doing still still holding on to these things
1: yeah wow oh, man that's cool well once you're done the psych degree you can come study with me at ssu
0: so. Yeah, no, I trust me. I I've told I've told my wife. I'm like, that's that's what, that's what I'm doing. I'm I'm coming up. Um, awesome.
1: Well, I'm so. glad you had that encounter, and you can see how quickly. I mean, it can just overtake you so quickly. And it, yeah, and like I say, it's because he's been waiting there your whole life. You know, he. Uh, so yeah. why, if he would do that for you, is there anybody who's like thinking, no, I won't bother with them? And it seems to yeah. me people just need to be, probably readiness. Has to do with our willingness to let go, you know, hmm. and um, especially let go of toxic ideas of God and hmm. and um, and, to, and of ourselves. You
0: know? Yeah, and and with that in mind, the the toxic views of God. I, I think since we're coming to the close, um, I, I think okay, like my fundamentalist me sitting there thinking, okay, Brad, I get it, like it's more inclusive than we thought god is love but (laughs) he's also just and he's also uh, whatever uh adjective you want to throw in there he's he's just or he's holy or he's and i think even now that's still a, a response i come up against from some of my friends from back home and I don't. I, I'm sometimes I'm I'm good at responding to it, and sometimes I'm not. But but either way, what what is your response with, within in mind with a more Christ like God in mind, with her gates will never be shut in mind, and even with your new, your new book, which I'll, I I want to ask you a little bit about before we leave, what what do you say to that?
1: Yeah, that's quite easy. Um, and <laughs> oh, here, just memorize this. <laughs> so when we use the word nature or essence, we're talking about one thing. There is a simplicity to God, which is his nature or essence. And it's nature or essence means the whole thing and there's nothing else on top of it. And so the nature and essence of God is one thing like a pure diamond. His nature, in essence, is love. That's what the most mature theology of the Bible tells us in 1 John chapter 4. Hmm. It's not holiness or righteousness or justice. It's love. Love plus nothing. So Hmm. then, you can't have love but also holy, but also righteous, but also just, as if any of those attributes were as over against love. The holiness, righteousness, and justice that is not love, crucified the son of god Mm. but he does have those attributes but they are attributes of his nature so he is holy love he is just love he is righteous love these are facets of the one diamond and so the love of god is refracted through that one diamond in many ways and so and as we experience those refractions Uh, we would say, ah, this is the light of love. But now it's coming through, it's coming through his justice. It's coming through his mercy. It's coming through even his wrath against um, everything in me that is not love. And so um, in that sense, the love of God cannot be retributive. It's all about being restorative. Um, So that's, Mm -hmm. if you imagine that diamond, he, he can't be the diamond plus something else but he can be a many faceted diamond, but every attribute is a, an adjective of his love. So a good example in the Bible, Hebrews chapter 12, it's like when you go through a trial and you and you begin to understand it as a judgment, never, ever, ever think of it as any other of judgment as other than a loving father trying to restore you. There, mm-hmm. okay? So that's corrective love. It's even, it's even a kind of judging love. But it's a it's a restorative judgment of a loving father who wants to strengthen weak hands and lift up those with crumbling knees, and that's what Hebrews twelve says. Later it'll even say, you know, it's like he's a consuming fire. But what's he consuming? Everything in me that is not love's kind, and he and and um, so that can be a bit terrifying. But it's mm. but if you remember, oh, this is the work of love, uh, then then you can surrender to it and and then you realize oh the only torment is my own resistance. <laughs> so yeah. Uh let go again, right? So that's how I that's how I typically answer that. And that that's you know straight out of the church fathers. Yeah. I'm not really saying anything novel. Novelty's not been our friend theologically. Um so I just yeah. I studied the people who gave us the New Testament, the doctrine of the deity of Christ and the Trinity. And like, how did they see this? and this is how they saw it.
0: hmm, yeah, that's good, but before I end, usually, what I try to do, especially since this is a podcast kind of revolving around spiritual practice, I think in the church today, there's a real deficit of just a practice of encouragement mm-hmm. um and and so, I just want to encourage you and and say your your work has has really impacted me and and brought healing and and uh and restoration in some really dark times and and i don't i don't say this glibly and i don't say it with with any lightness but i genuinely mean it books like a more christ-like god and and sinners in the hands of a loving god i do not think i would have been able to maintain my faith in the way that it that it was exercised i knew i love jesus i need jesus i want jesus but this is what i'm seeing of jesus and and so to be reintroduced to jesus with With your work and or to be introduced to Jesus in some ways it it's it's helped me in in so many ways and and so in a lot of ways I, I I very much feel like I'm sitting talking to my hero um someone who who has really saved my faith in a lot of ways and so from me and my wife and I'm sure countless others i I, I just really want to say thank you to you well
1: thanks for saying that because um you know I need to test what i'm teaching and doing by the fruit. Right. And so Mm -hmm. to me, I'm like, okay, on my, on my hard days when, um, of doubt, then I can, then I can say, is is this actually helping or am I harming, you know? Mm -hmm. And if it's retrieved faith for you in some way, I'm like, okay, that's good fruit. Then maybe we're getting warm to the beautiful gospel. Right. So thank you.
0: Absolutely. And, and in closing, where, where, people, where can people find you and, and what are you working on right now?
1: Um, so they can find me on bradjursak.com. They can find me on Facebook and Twitter and Instagram. Mm-hmm. And um, I'm working on a third Christ-like book called A More Christ-like Word. And I think the subtitle will be Reading the Bible the Emmaus Way. And Mm -hmm. it's basically saying the Bible, we've often talked about the Bible is the word of God. Actually, Jesus is the word of God. He is what God has to say about himself. And the Bible Mm -hmm. is a faithful witness pointing to him. That means um, we must not read the Bible without reference to how it points to Jesus, witnesses to him and that can be difficult work when you're reading Old Testament texts that seem pretty toxic themselves, right? Yeah. Um, but Jesus gets the last word. Um, he is the revelation of God. And and scripture either either testifies to that or it testifies against <laughs> um, the ways we've miscomprehended God. So, um, And when I talk about the Emmaus way, what I'm talking about is on, on the road to Emmaus, on the day of his resurrection, Jesus said that Moses, the prophets, and all the scriptures testify that the Messiah must um, suffer and then come into his glory. And so I'm, I'm trying to explain how to read the Bible the way Jesus may have read it that day yeah and what are the hints about how that would work so that'll hopefully come out next year
0: yeah i i it's funny i actually had a whole sheet of questions ready to ask you about it cuz i i thought it was actually coming out in the next few months um well we can do when, that another time <laughs> yes i i i was just about to say that i would love to to talk to you about that book and and you guys heard it here uh if you guys don't know Brad go look him up he has so much so many good resources, whether you have questions about hell or about Jesus or about how to live in light of Jesus. And, and even just the things that, that he posts on a, on a regular basis, there's so much to glean. And so if you guys have not heard of Brad, you should go check him out. And Brad, again, thank you so much for being with me today. My pleasure.